The Spectator's prestigious Economic Innovator of the Year Award in partnership with Investec are now in their sixth year. Wherever you're based in the UK, we can't wait to hear about the success of your business and the impact you're making on the economy and society in 2023. Applications are now open and will close June 16th. To learn more and apply, please visit spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and longtime China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How did the Chinese see these issues? Did you know that there is a booming mail-order bride industry linking up Chinese women to Western suitors? Except it might not be quite what you expect. It turns out that it is not so much young and uneducated women looking to marry out of the country anymore, and more middle-aged and financially well-off divorcees looking for something different. The mail-order bride industry is changing as the women involved are becoming more empowered with China's growing wealth. And they're also becoming more demanding. On a podcast today, I speak to sociologist Monica Liu, whose new book, Seeking Western Men, is all about these changing dynamics of race, class, gender, and ultimately power. Monica, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I first came across your work through an article you wrote for Sixth Tone, which I can link in the description for listeners. And it really intrigued me how your point about how the mail order bride industry is changing. But I wondered if, first of all, we can start with an overview of that whole industry. How big is it? How does it work? Because I suspect it's one of those things that people have heard of, but few really know about. Sure. So this so-called mail-order bride industry actually has a very long history in the U.S. dating back to the 1800s when we had the Caucasian workers who went to explore the Western frontier actually seek brides from the East Coast through newspaper ads. And then later on in the 1800s, Japanese immigrants who were working on plantations in Hawaii had actually looked for wives from Japan through this means. And back in the days, people exchanged photographs and letters through postal mail. But today, all of that has been replaced by email communication and online chatting and video chats. So today, a lot of men from economically developed countries in Western Europe, in Australia, and in North America, so the US and Canada, a lot of them are seeking brides from less economically advanced countries in Asia and parts of Latin America and in Eastern Europe. So the company that I studied actually had 1.6 million Western men enrolled, and this Western company had partnered with multiple local companies across Asia and Eastern Europe and Latin America. And that is just one business. So there are many, many such Western-based companies that recruit the Western men that work with many local dating agencies in developing countries. So this is a large global business chain, and I believe it's worth $2.5 billion. So 1.6 million men in one company. Right. That's just in one company, and there are multiple companies that (laughs) operate. So... Indeed, this is a huge business. And every time I give my talk somewhere and I ask my audience, do you know of someone that has married someone from a developing country through this means and brought them overseas? And someone raises their hand. 
So it's much more prevalent than we think. That's amazing. And and the thing that makes it an industry, I guess, is, as you say, these kind of dating agencies that work as middlemen. Is that right? That's what makes it rather than just international dating. There is like an industry associated with it. Right. There's a whole industry associated with it. And interestingly, one clarification I want to make here is that in the context of China, the companies that recruit the Chinese women, they don't identify as matchmakers. That's because matchmaking cross borders is actually officially illegal in the context of China. Probably the government has concerns for human trafficking. So what these China-based agencies are providing is translation service. So they have translators to translate the email exchanges and face-to-face conversations between the women and the men. So technically, they are what these companies call a friendship platform where people can meet each other and the company provides translation and cultural communication services. So technically, they're a translation agency, not a quote-unquote matchmaker. That sounds like a bit of a loophole then. I mean, presumably the men and women who go to these agencies, sorry, at least from the Chinese side, they know what they're getting into. They know that it's a romantic relationship they're looking for, right? Right, right. It is. But the expectation is that the dating agencies, they're just a platform where the men and women meet each other. But the uh, respondents, they still have the autonomy to decide who they want to date, who they want to marry, and they're not necessarily rely on the staff to matchmake, so to speak, because the women can choose who they want to write to and so can the men. Right, of course. And your research has focused mainly on the Chinese and Western interaction part of that global industry. Tell us how you carried out that research. Sure. So I actually never imagined I would get into this research when I first entered grad school. So it kind of fell in my lap. So I actually was a business major. So I had a degree in business administration in undergrad, and I went into graduate school wanting to study economic sociology, specifically guanxi or relationship building and how that affects business dynamics in China. So actually, during my first year in graduate school, um, an old family friend of my dad's had actually called and telling him that she was dating this American man who wanted to meet her in China. And she had never dated a Western man. And she was a middle aged woman. So she wanted some dating advice. So my dad actually put her in touch with me. And after hearing her story, I was very much fascinated by this dating agency she told me about especially when I found out that a lot of the female clients are middle-aged and divorced with kids. Because at the time, in my mind, uh, women who seek marriage migration is generally someone who's young and never married. And I was going to China that summer anyway to visit my grandparents. So I asked her if I could visit the dating agency, and she actually put me in touch with the managers. And then eventually it turned out that the manager was my uncle's old office mate. So she told me that I could go and do research. So that first summer, I was so fascinated by what I saw on site that I just kept going back every summer. After many of the women got married and moved abroad, I also visited them in their homes and then followed up on their postmarital lives. So this research took me to some of the most amazing places. Um, I've been to visited women who lived in trailer home parks in Florida. I've been to construction sites in Alaska. I've been to industrial areas of London. And in terms of my methodology, what I did was what we call in sociology ethnography. So this includes in-depth interviews alongside with observation. So 
I interviewed the women, the men who flew to China to visit them, as well as the staff at their dating agencies, which includes the translators and the managers. We engaged in a lot of shared activity and socialization together. For example, eating out at restaurants, going shopping together, going out to karaoke. Whenever there's an engagement party for the couples, I would attend those parties, and I would be invited to visit the women in their homes, and they would often cook for me. Amazing! So you really became part of the family, which I think does come through in your research that you you saw them for over many years. You mentioned there that these women were not the kind of people that you expected to be looking for international marriages. Not so much these younger, uneducated, possibly unmarried women from poorer backgrounds, but actually more middle class divorcees. So has there been a shift in the Chinese market, or was that always a bit of a stereotype, a myth that it was younger women looking to get out, or has there actually been a change? No, I believe there actually has. Been a change because back in the 1980s and 1990s, I believe the majority of women who had sought Western men and married and migrated out, many of them were in their 20s, never married. So the shift is that today, as China develops economically, a lot of younger women are no longer. Interested in marrying Western men because they feel that there are a lot of domestic men to choose from. Many of them are very financially successful, very charismatic, and the women also feel that they have very, very good dating prospects locally, and they feel that they have good economic prospects too because China is booming. And a lot of younger women today are products of China's one-child policy, so they also want to. Stay in China to help take care of their aging parents,、mm. so they really don't see a lot of reason for out migration anymore. And I believe that has a lot to do with China's economic growth. So, in fact, at the dating agencies where I did my research, they actually give women below the age of thirty free membership in order to encourage them to join the dating agencies because they they have a lack of younger female clients for that reason. Mm-hmm. So, in, in the dating agencies that you saw, it tended to be actually more middle-aged divorcees, people who are looking for a second marriage.、Uh, you write in your article for Sixth Tone. So, what are the men that they are looking for? Like, what 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 is that? What do they want in that area? So, in general, the Chinese women are looking for a nice guy, so、uh, someone who is a family man who is loyal and caring and loving and open to marrying women their own age. And willing to be good stepfathers to their children, what a lot of these women are finding is that a lot of men in China, especially men who are social economically privileged, they're looking to remarry a much younger woman. So they also want someone who's a good provider, who's going to be willing to take on the breadwinner role in the marriage and practice chivalry. So coming from the Post-reform China, where masculinity is actually tied to breadwinning, a lot of women actually lost interest in their Western suitors when the men traveled China face to face and saw the women, and the women saw that these men engaged in so-called gender egalitarian spending styles, where their couples were expected to split bills. So even though here in the West we equate the sharing of fiscal responsibility between men and women. With progressiveness and modernity, a lot of my respondents saw it as being effeminate and undesirable. So, what these women are really looking for is some sort of hybrid masculinity ideal that combines traits from both the Western family man, the devoted, caring husband, and also a、uh, generous, wealthy Chinese entrepreneur. 
And so in this book, I show that contrary to the assumption of some gender scholars, right, this Western masculine practices of fiscal egalitarianism, it doesn't always have this strong influence in China. That explains so much of the conversations I have with my mum. I mean, I hadn't quite really, until I was talking to you, I hadn't quite really put together this different ideas of expectation of gender roles, especially over money in marriages and relationships, this cultural gap that you've just voiced. For Chinese women, for them to expect that the man to be the breadwinner, is it that the West has moved on in its kind of egalitarianism, as you call it, and everyone kind of started on the same baseline that the men would provide? Or is there something particularly Chinese about expecting the man to provide? Maybe I'm overthinking it. I would say that historically, men have been the breadwinners. And in a sense, you're right, the West has moved on. So ever since women started joining the labor force in the West, a lot of the feminist movements really pushed for women to have a foothold outside the family door and to be able to make an income. And supposedly that would give women power. Now, the situation in China is really interesting because China actually went through a reversal. So historically, right, China embraced the male breadwinner, female homemaker model. The majority of the women did not have her jobs outside the home. But after the communists won the revolution in 1949 and they took over, this was when women were pushed into the labor market and into paid labor. So the model during that era is that women hold up half the sky, meaning that whatever men can do, women can do. So during this time, women were required by the state to participate in the paid labor force. But this created a tricky situation where women were enduring a so-called double burden, where they were expected to work outside the home, but then they were also doing the majority of the housework after they returned home due to traditional gender norms. So a lot of women who went through that era actually see women's participation in the paid labor force as disempowering. And so they Mm. embrace homemaking because it was something that they had never experienced when they were younger. On the other hand, in China, after the reform and opening up, wealth became conglomerated within the hands of a very small subset of men who became wealthy entrepreneurs. And then women's positions on the labor market and women's wages actually declined. And part of this has to do with the massive state-owned enterprise layoffs during the 90s. A lot of women who were in factories lost their jobs. They were laid off at much, much higher rates than men. And they were told by the state and the government to go home and embrace your domestic duties instead of rejoining the labor force. So on the one hand, we have a small group of men that were right getting wealthy. And then we have women's economic positions declining. So in this kind of environment, women take on what I call in the book, the strategy of entrepreneurial Chinese style feminism. So they choose to capitalize on their sexuality and their domesticity to find a good catch on the marriage market instead of investing themselves in the labor market and compete directly with men on the labor market, because they see that as more fitting to the situation that women, particularly middle-aged, older women, um, more more fitting to that situation under that specific socioeconomic context. 
Yeah, so they themselves become the product, the thing that they invest in rather than their careers or their education per se. Right. They see it as a more worthwhile investment because some women actually had married ex-husbands who, for example, were also laid up from those state-owned enterprises. And instead of acquiring new jobs, some of these men resorted to gambling and they sought out sex workers and they did not live up to their family responsibilities or maybe they disappeared to escape debt. So these women feel that if I'm going to marry someone who maybe gamble away my hard hard earned money and is going to cheat on me anyway, then I might as well marry rich and um and make money from that instead of marry someone who will cheat on me and make me broke. So Yeah. Absolutely. So just going back to this, what women are looking for, what Chinese women are looking for at the moment, you you talk about this kind of hybrid masculinity. But you also have mentioned in your piece, at least about this transnational business masculinity. Can you explain what you mean by that? Because I have this idea of like George Clooney's character up in the air. I don't know if you've seen that film. I have not seen that film, but I know a little bit about George Clooney, yes. Um, so transnational business masculinity basically refers to someone who is in business, someone who is in possibly a global corporate leadership roles. So the idea is that this is a person who is well-traveled, cosmopolitan, is very confident, like a suit and tie type of person on Wall Street or some kind of corporate level manager for a big global company. So the idea is that a lot of the women who were financially well off that joined the dating agencies, they were essentially economic winners of China's globalization. Some of these women are ex-wives of newly rich Chinese businessmen. Some of these women were former mistresses of these wealthy Chinese businessmen. Some of the women were themselves successful entrepreneurs and Mm. others were middle class or upper middle class. So they're in management or maybe they were doctors. So they're used to dating um, the men that embody this kind of transnational business masculinity. So someone, as I previously said, confident, well-traveled, cosmopolitan, so on and so forth. Really someone who exhibits traits of confidence and leadership. And on the other hand, a lot of the Western men who are coming through the agencies to meet these women, they don't embody that kind of masculinity because many of these men are rural. They're coming from small towns and rural areas in the West. Some of them were former small business owners or a lot of truck drivers or men who right, were not in leadership roles at work. So they are far from the image of transnational business masculinity. And when those Chinese women meet the men, they are disappointed because those men do not embody the kind of elite masculinity that they had imagined or were used to. So some of these women actually end up rejecting those Western men when they meet the men face to face. And some of them would go back to dating the uh, wealthy Chinese businessmen, even if those men were married and just having an affair with them, they choose that over a Western man who right has the uh, desire to actually marry them. So I saw a lot of that at the dating agencies. So in fact, when I went back to the agencies to visit in 2017, 2018, and 2019, a lot of the concerns of the women have also shifted. Previously, they were concerned if the men were going to add their names to the deeds or what kind. They wanted to see photographs of the men's homes to see if he lived in a nice house. But now a lot of the women, they have multiple properties in China. So they're asking about how they could write up prenuptial agreements to 
protect their premarital <laughs> asset. And I've also seen women who are well off who met somebody that they felt was perfect for them in every other way. Maybe this person was a very good stepfather to their children and he's handsome and had a great personality, but maybe he didn't live in the perfect house that she wanted or the town that she wanted. So one of the ways that women are overcoming this is they would sell one of their properties in China and reinvest that money so that they would be living in a house that she purchased. So you can really mm. see the shift in um, economic power dynamics between the couples because of China's uh, economic rise. But on the other hand, I would also caution us to realize that this is tied to the women's class position. So for about half of the women who end up that I had uh, followed and interviewed who were struggling financially in China. So those were single moms who had lost their state jobs and they later ended up in the contingent employment sector working as nannies or as street vendor. So those women who are economically struggling, they're not bringing any capital to the West. In fact, after they marry their husbands, they would try to go out and find a job at as a waitress at a restaurant or a massage parlor. So women like that they're still in some ways financially dependent on their husbands, particularly before they get those jobs. They're dependent on their husbands for a green card. So they're still in an economically disadvantaged position, especially if they're bringing their children. So what I would say that is that today, um, how much power a woman has in their relationship depends on her social economic class in China. Just being a Chinese woman doesn't tell you the whole story anymore. Mm -hmm. But we're now also seeing many more of these financially independent Chinese women, whereas I guess previously, many more of the, the women associated would have been from that second category of having less financial power, less power in general. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think I noticed that you at the end, you know, you, you say that they're now even sometimes preferring Chinese men to Western men. And I think this point is worth drawing out for our listeners, because for British or American listeners, it might seem obvious that Chinese women prefer Chinese men. But there's a cultural nuance here, I feel, um, and I'm keen to hear what you think about this as well, where... I guess whether it's because of the centuries of Western domination in terms of colonialism or imperialism or even longer standing Chinese privileging whiteness or paleness in aesthetics. But I do think that, at least in the China that I grew up in, you know, it, it was commonly accepted that white people were more beautiful and that white men were more uh, desirable than Chinese men. I mean, I don't know if you would agree with the reasons I've put down for this, but I think that has definitely been a trend where, you know, if a Chinese woman's opting for a Chinese man over white man is worth commenting about. Yeah, sure. So what I saw in the dating agencies was kind of mixed and it was very interesting. I certainly had seen some women expressing their desire for Western men who they thought were taller or more handsome. In fact, I remember one female client, so she was financially well off and the person that she was dating, he, uh, well, she eventually married him, but he was a, he worked at a factory, but he was very handsome, very good looking. So she was very much taken away by one, his devotion and loyalty to her, but also, more importantly, his handsomeness. And she said that whenever she would go out on the street to shop with him or if they would ever go to eat out, the waitresses or people working in the store would always comment on how handsome her boyfriend is. And that gave her a lot of delight. So <laughs> there's, Fair enough. Yeah. So, so there's certainly that. But on the other hand, I also hear a lot of women complaining about how they don't find Western men attractive. And part of this may have something to do with the age. So 
some of the women feel that Western men don't age as well as Chinese men. So a Western man who is, for example, maybe 50 years old would look 10 years older than the Chinese counterpart. Um, another thing that the women actually had issues with is the Western men's body hair and their body odor, because that's not something they're used to. And for some women, that um, was actually a hurdle for them that they have to overcome in the bedroom. And some of the men that came to the agencies, they also had weight issues. So that's not as prevalent in Asia. So that was mm. something that some of the women found unattractive. So what I saw was a real, uh, like a real mixed bag there. And I think part of it also has something to do with the age range of these Western men, right? So when we stereotypically think of the ideal Western man, we think of Hollywood movies, we, we think of, right, these George actors. Clooney. Yeah, George Clooney, Tom Cruise, you know, th- these men that look young and are in great shape, but that's not necessarily the kind of men that are coming through at the agencies, right? These are just your everyday average men. Another thing I found is that some of the women were sexually curious. So the, I feel the Western men did have a certain level of racialized sexual capital, meaning that some of the women were curious to try out these men. Maybe they would want to have a short-term relationship with the men, but when it comes to marriage, they would not be interested unless they know that this person is a good provider. So there's sexual curiosity mm. there, but that does not equate them wanting Western men in a long-term relationship. And and finally, just the language barrier and the cultural differences. I think that makes it hard for the women to engage in deep level communication or um, they feel that that might not make them as compatible. Mm. We've already mentioned this difference in opinion on whether or not you should split the bill and that kind of stuff. What other cultural gaps are there, do you think, in the research that you've done, do you see between the Chinese view of marriage and perhaps a more European view or or American view? I believe the other one is the extent to which you support your children and your family. So I see a lot of women sending money back to their grown children or getting a second job when they go abroad to the U.S. and then sending that some remittance back for their grown children so their children have a home to live. Or even this tradition in China where parents are expected to purchase homes for their grown sons or at least assist them, assist them with their mortgage because the social norm is that men are supposed to provide housing for women as a precondition to marriage. So that is not the norm in the West. And that's actually one of the reasons why the Chinese women choose to marry the Western men is because they feel that in China, the finances are complicated and women with sons, they have a hard time finding a husband because no man wants to right, support a woman who has to pay off the mortgage for the son. So, mm. but on the other hand, once they marry the Western men, right, the men will sometimes also have a problem if the woman is spending all this money supporting their grown children, which does not fit with Western norms of parenting. Yes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And just going back to on something you said earlier, you know, you use this phrase racialized sexual capital, which I, I really like as a as a phrase. I think it explains a lot. Do you think that there's a reverse as well where the white men coming into these dating agencies see the Chinese women as having some kind of racialized sexual capital as well? In other words, you know, they're, they're out looking for a partner who looks a certain way. Yes, um, definitely. I feel that a lot of the men are looking for someone who's 
thin. So that's a big deal for the men, probably because in the West, particularly in the United States, a lot of women who are middle-aged and older, they tend to be on the heavier side by comparison to Asian women. And there are also a lot of these men. That, so I don't, I'm not sure if this is necessarily racialized sexual capital, but it's a form of femininity that they're looking for. So a lot of men, mm. they feel that in the West, women have become overly feminized. Some of these men call women feminazis for being overly um, invested in their careers and being aggressive at home. I remember one man who said, I don't want a wife who is going to come home and argue with me or try to compete with me. Why would you want to come home to that? So some of these men grew up in the 1950s and 1960s where maybe they had a stay-at-home mom who was invested in the domestic fear when men were out being the breadwinners. So for people like that, they're very nostalgic of having a stay-at-home wife which they feel there is very difficult to find in the West. And that's one of the reasons they're looking to the East and to other places in Eastern Europe or Latin America, looking for a so-called traditional woman. And for some of the men that are in the study who are working class, they feel that they've experienced downward social economic mobility as well. So they feel disempowered. And for them to, again, presume the breadwinner role and marry someone who is less economically privileged, they feel that it helps them bolster their sense of masculinity that they feel they've lost as a result of their downward social economic mobility. So in some ways, the women are providing a certain type of femininity that helps them bolster their masculinity. Well, they must be awfully surprised then when one of these empowered, financially independent women ends up with them. In your piece, you mentioned this woman who is judging her husband, her white working class husband for eating 12 lollipops in one sitting in front of the TV. And she's there thinking, this is not the kind of man I'm looking for. You know, there must be so much um, tension there. Yes, there is tension. And a lot of it is because the women and the men, they don't know who the other person is and and how he acts or their position in their respective home countries. So I remember this particular woman said, we are the cream of the crop in China, but then we end up marrying the trash of the West. Those were the exact terms that she used. Um, so yes, there's, there's often tension, but I think as the couples build their relationships over time, they get used to it and they try to, um, accommodate each other and understand each other. So if there's love in the relationship, then sometimes they can overlook these differences and work some of the differences out. Mm. Well, that brings me to my next question, which is just how quickly does a process like this happen? Because you've mentioned that actually a lot of this is taking place over email now. The men clearly go to China and see some of their potential brides. The women are able to refuse, blah, 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 blah. But if they were to go ahead to marriage, how quickly does that happen? And what about the language gap then? Because surely we cannot be expecting that all of these women will be speaking English and we certainly can't expect that any of these men will speak Chinese. Um, usually the men and women, after they meet online, they'll write for a few months and then the men will travel to China to meet the woman. And I've seen and on rare occasions, they would get married on the spot. Um, but more often than not, if the first meeting goes well, the man will go back to his home country, write for a, her for another few months, and then they could plan a wedding in China then, or she may go back with him as a fiancé and she would be on a K-1 visa. So usually from the time when they meet until the time they marry, I would say 
at least a year, sometimes two years, so one to two years. So, so it is quite a long process. And is there a language gap? So it's interesting, and this has changed over time as well. So when I first went to the dating agency, the translators were doing the bulk of the translation because I don't think our cell phones had the same kind of translation capability right back in the early two thousands versus now. So back in the days, they relied on the translators for the email exchange, and when they met in person, they would go and translate. They would write things and put them into Google Translator online to have that being translated if they didn't have a professional translator around. But today, that has changed because you can actually speak into your cell phone and have your phone translated into a different language and type it out. So it's much much less of a problem today than it used to be. But honestly, I think the challenge comes most for couples. After the women marry and move abroad, because that's when they no longer have a translator on their side to assist them. But I think because of the advent of technology, it has not been too much of a problem for the couples. Sometimes I do get phone calls from couples if whatever translation device they're using is not giving them the exact answer they wanted, and they want someone in person to help them negotiate something that's important. But for day to day life, it seems to be fine just using the online translation tools. WeChat saving marriages, <laughs> Monica. You know, I, I'm particularly interested in the power dynamics involved in all of these things. We've talked about the different racial hierarchies involved, but also, what do you put it down as that it's Western men going to China looking for Chinese women, and it's not Chinese men going to the West looking for Western brides? You know, I think all of this is related to how we think about. Masculinity and how we think about femininity, right? So, particularly in a place like China, masculinity is associated with men's earning capacity, particularly today. And usually, it's the woman who's married in order to quote unquote move up the social economic ladder. So, for Chinese men to leave behind everything he has to Marry a woman who's living in a more economically developed country that probably does not fit with the ideology of of masculinity, and similarly for Western women, for them to leave the United States, which is still admittedly the right the number one global superpower, right to move to a less developed economy that's also not in line with what we typically think of as right associated with femininity. But on the other hand, I do see there is a big, or there used to be a big industry of Chinese men actually marrying Ukrainian women and bringing those Ukrainian、mm. women to China, even though those women were white. But then. Right, despite the fact that the Ukrainian women have some racialized sexual capital, they're not coming from an economically advantaged place. So these women are trying to leave Ukraine and they're going to China. Actually, at one point, I had been asked by a dating agency to help recruit Chinese men. And give them tours in Ukraine when they go to Ukraine to visit some of those women. And for some of the men, I think the idea is that Asian men being able to quote unquote conquer white women, a beautiful like marrying a beautiful white woman as a so called trophy wife, that was also something that's appealing to the men. But in this case, the man has the economic power; the woman has the、mm. racialized sexual capital. I, I'm glad you brought that up because I was just about to say actually that I remember in the aftermath of the invasion first happening last year on Chinese search engines, you know, 
where Ukraine doesn't commonly come up, a lot of the searches were Ukrainian women. What do Ukrainian brides look like? Those were some of the hot searches. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, this is quite bizarre. Very interesting, Monica. Thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Just a side note, if you enjoy this episode, I think you'd also enjoy the journalism done by Sixth Tone, a China-based English language outlet which specialises in these fascinating and off-piste stories about Chinese society. Check them out. Check them out.